But let me start here, okay? We have a lot of symbols in our society, and some of you are learning those symbols. Some of you are in that permit stage or in that early stage of approaching your permit, and one of the things you're supposed to know are what the different symbols mean as far as road signs, things for that, uh, along that line. Let's see how you do this morning, okay? What does this one mean? Okay, that's an easy one. We should know that one. Okay. Okay, that's a warning. Got a stoplight ahead. That's all through Lebanon. Okay, we have that. <laughs> Handicap parking. Okay. Men leaning on a shovel. Yeah, that's. <laughs> Deb, Deb, what's that one mean? <laughs> you haven't done it for a while. I know. I'm just okay. <laughs> that's good for our pocketbook that you haven't done it for a while. Merging from the right. Oh, you're getting quieter. Okay. Somebody said points. No, that's, that's pedestrian crosswalk. Okay, there's a steep grade ahead. Flagman ahead. This is seen more overseas, but it's no passing area. Okay. Do not enter. Okay, do not enter. Okay. You're in Lancaster County. That's what that means. Okay. No texting. No cell phone use. By the way, speaking of signs, here's a couple that are real signs. Okay. <laughs> here's another one I thought was pretty good. If you hit this sign, you'll hit the bridge ahead. Okay. <laughs> Going back to symbols. We have all kinds of symbols in business. We all know that one. Yeah. There we go. Now, you got them in political areas. What did you say? Trouble? <laughs> and communism. Religious areas. Islam. Islam. Okay, Christianity is a sign. Matter of fact, Christianity has several signs. Um, sometimes they'll show it with fish. Okay, you've seen that? The sign that was used for fish? Okay, uh, you know, question that I have that some people don't understand is why did they use fish in the early centuries of the church? Was it one of these reasons? Based on the story of the miraculous number of fish caught, the miracle of the fire, of feeding of the thousands with fish and bread, did they use the fish because Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, or the early church leaders were fishermen, it was easy, the design was really quick and easy to do, or was it the communion crackers were in the shape of the fish in the early church, or was it because Legend says Jesus' grandfather was a fisherman, or was it because of Jesus' names? It's one of those. I got an eight. I got a two. Do I have more? Three, five. Okay. Four. Okay. It's really because of number eight. It's number eight. If you go back and understand that back in, uh, in the Greek language, fish, you would say ichthus. You take the first, the letters of fish, and each one of them can be used for the first letter of one of Jesus' titles. Jesus, Christos, Theos, Yehuias, or Soter. So you have Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So it was a real quick sign, and they needed that. Because back in the early church, persecution started very quickly. You understand that you've heard of all these accounts. They were accused, the early church people were accused of being pagans or atheists. 
And it's kind of strange. You and I would say they were atheists. Yeah, because back in that culture, they had many, many, many gods. And by saying, oh, we don't worship all those gods, you're an atheist. You're only back to one god. You just don't believe in the gods. So they were accused of atheism. They were accused of rebellion and a lot of the persecution because they wouldn't serve in military. Well, by the way, that makes sense because the military was used primarily against the Christians, okay? So you wouldn't sign up for something that was going to be attacking your brothers and sisters in Christ. And most of the feasts and festivals were very decadent situations that were in honor of the various gods, and they would have to make pledges to gods. So obviously, the early believers wouldn't be a participant of it. They were also accused of being very sensual and very uh, promiscuous. They called their communion meal and getting together, they called it a love feast. That's what's used in 1 Corinthians. So the uh, critics immediately took that and said, oh, you're having all kinds of sexual escapades, and it's really, really, you know, uh, wild, and, and they were more, more um, immoral than the temple prostitutes and things like that that they had, and they were accused of, very, of promoting incest, because people would call their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Deb and I are brother and sister in the Lord. They're not only husband and wife, but brother and sister in the Lord. By using that terminology, then the public accu- accu- accusation was that we're being incestuous. And then they were also accused of cancer. Cannibalism. The critics would say, oh, you're having a service where you eat this body and drink the blood. Therefore, you're practicing cannibalism. And it came to a point where they were saying that the children, the Christians were taking their babies and actually sacrificing their babies and eating them at communion service. So it got really bizarre and they were accused. That's why they had to go underground. And so when they were trying to identify who's a believer or who's not a believer, they would quickly do in the sand that fish symbol so they could identify this is the spot, this is the place, this is where we're meeting and they could communicate in a very um, a very you know, quiet, un, un, inconspicuous way that they were believers and they were talking one to another. Now, when you get into their worship services, it's really interesting to make comparisons. What did they do when the early church gathered? What type of things did they have? They usually had a platform that was raised like we have here. Congregation usually sat on benches. They didn't sit the way you're sitting this morning. Typically, the ladies would sit in the rear with the kids or they'd sit on the outside and the men would be in the center. On the platform would be the, the preacher and the hoi polloi of the congregation. When they had a service, the order was kind of similar to what we do in an order of a service. There would be praying, scripture reading, there would be singing of songs, there would be some more prayer, there would be preaching, and then as well they would have singing and praying at the end. And then almost every one of the services that they would conduct in Bible days, they would have communion. And they made it a very, very important part of their early church services. And uh, they did that because of what it symbolized. And so they talk a lot about it. And Paul, writing under the inspiration of Scripture, uh, the Spirit in Scripture, he has to explain because the Corinthians are following up communion like they followed up so many other things. And by the way, we pick on the Corinthian church a lot because they had a lot of flaws. But I'm so glad they're recorded in Scripture because it helps us to know some of the rights and wrongs to do when we come to worship. And in communion, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a whole section that gives us information about this communion service. Now, what we know is it was instituted by Jesus Christ. We all know from Sunday school and different things, Jesus started it the night before he is going to die on the cross. That he gathered the disciples in an upper room and he talks about a variety of things and then he instituted what's called the Lord's service. Now, Paul explains more about that. He explains who should participate, how it should be done, how often it should be done, why we're supposed to do it. So let's flip to that First Corinthians passage. Let's pick up the last tidbit of information about communion in the idea of 
progressive revelation. This is the most thorough explanation of how we as a church should do it. We're in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we read these words. I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged... We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man hungers, a whole lot, let him eat at home, he, that you come not together unto condemnation. And when the rest and the rest of things will I set in order when I come. Now, from that text, here's what we learn. He taught them more when he showed up later, according to verse 34. But here's what he made sure that they understood. They understood that communion was a required service, that it is a commanded service. If you go through scriptures, it is an idea that we're supposed to do this, not just once in a while. The word and the verbiage that he has is you do this repeatedly, and it's for all of you. It's interesting that he changes the pronouns. He changes the verb, the verb as far as the person at times, where he starts some places in the passage, like in verses 24 and 25, he talks about you all do this, and then he mentions sometimes individually you do this, and then in verse 26, for as oft as you all eat this bread, you all do show the Lord's death. So he's blending it to saying, okay, this is something for, uh, for all of us to be doing, required of you and of me, that we do this on a re- uh, as required with regularity. He's made that comment, and I alluded to it. This do repeatedly. Do this from time to time. Now, the question that he brings up is, how often should you do it? Well, as often as you do indicates that you and I have a choice. We as a church body can choose how often we want to do it, as often as you do this. But the idea is we're supposed to do it with regularity, and we're supposed to keep on doing this until the Lord comes, according to verse 26. He hasn't come back. That means this is still an instituted service that we are supposed to do and some churches do it every week some churches do it every month some may choose to do it by you know, several months of the year goes by and then they do it, it's up to that church ministry, we respect and we understand each church can choose how they do it, we opt to do it basically and try to do it every month sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening as I earlier had said it is supposed to be not only a required service, not only a service with regularity, it's to be a service with rejoicing The idea here is Jesus Christ, when he instituted, when he had given thanks. Based on that, churches have developed a whole concept of this and said, wait a minute, Jesus, at the night before he is going to die, knowing he is in turmoil, in fact, just a couple hours after this, he goes into the garden and he is in such turmoil, what does he sweat? 
He sweats blood. So he is, he is in physical distress, and yet he is giving thanks during the communion service that he institutes. And so he brings this and says, okay, this is a service. No matter what your difficulty, we're supposed to be approaching this with rejoicing. There's supposed to be a celebration aspect about this. The idea of this service is that we're supposed to be remembering. With rejoicing, we're supposed to take time to remember. The fact is, do this in remembrance of me. This is all about Jesus. The primary goal, the primary thought here is, what about Jesus? What did Jesus do for me? Now, we set aside in America, and appropriately so, we set aside days. We do them at a couple different places of the year where we set aside days to recognize military for the sacrifice they have made. We do that to living veterans on Veterans Day, and then we do it on Memorial Day, those who have sacrificed and given their life. And we, with sobriety and with thanksgiving, we come and we say, thank you for all that you have done. We also... When there are crises moments, we remember certain events and it becomes marked into our lives, into our minds that this is a moment that we shall never forget and we will remember and we will pay honor and respect at those moments because of what happened with those events. Well, he says that's what communion is about. Communion is a veteran service. It is a memorial service. It is a 9-11 service for believers. It is a remembrance and a reminder that Jesus Christ has died for us. It is for us to, on a regular basis, pause and say, now wait a minute, Jesus really sacrificed. It is all about and picturing what he has done. It is a symbolic service, just like we talked about symbols before. What we do is crackers and grape juice, they symbolize something very important. Now some churches, I understand, say that, oh wait a minute, this is actually the body and blood of Jesus. Think about it. If that were really true. When he instituted that service, he was standing there physically. And as he stood there physically, he said, this bread, piece of bread, is my body. This, this grape fruit of the vine, it is my blood. It was obviously symbolism because he was physically standing there. They were not his physical body and blood. He was standing in that. He was using and establishing symbolism to say they are going to represent what he has done, what he has sacrificed, what he has given for you and me, that he has given his life. He has suffered physically. He has given the essence of life because life is in the blood. He has given that for you and for me to have forgiveness of sins. I remember reading the story several years ago about a gentleman who all of a sudden one day in the Napoleonic era had a knock on his door and it was the conscriptors. Those who would come and they would have a drawing and a lottery system in the French nation for who was to be in the military service. And so they showed up and said, you, sir, you need to report for duty. We have sent you some information. You haven't shown up. And he said, well, wait a minute. I've already reported for duty. I've already served my time in the military. In fact, I died during a battle. They were just amazed. How can you stand here and say you died during a battle? He said, check your records. I reported for duty and I died in battle. They went back and they checked the legal records and documents. And sure enough, this fella who had a large family had several years earlier reported for duty and he had served in battle. And during the battle, he was killed. Well, they couldn't understand this. The records must be mistaken. The man insisted, your records are right. He tried to explain, but they just scoffed. And, the, you know, smaller officials who think they're in power, they wouldn't listen to him. So it ended up going up into the ranks, and it ended up before Napoleon himself. The man is standing there. He's giving his story. He's explaining. And he's telling the emperor, he said, when I was drafted a few years back, I had a family. A friend of mine who was a single man, he offered to take my place. So he reported, and he gave... He 
said who he was, but he was reporting in my name. They accepted that. They accepted him into the military in my name. He went to battle. He fought in the battle. He was killed in battle. And so therefore, my military obligations have been fulfilled because my name was called, somebody reported, took my place, and that somebody died in my stead. I should be freed from having to leave my family and be conscripted into the service. Napoleon ruled that the man was absolutely right legally. Somebody took his place. Somebody died in his stead. He was a freed man. He could never be called upon for military service. Listen, friend, Jesus Christ has taken your place. He has been himself, allowed himself to put himself on the cross in your place, and he has died in your stead for your sins. He gave his life for you for me, for everyone else in this room. And he has given that life. Therefore, we do not have to suffer the penalties for our sins. He's already taken them. It would be double jeopardy, jeopardy spiritually for God to punish us for the sins that Jesus has already died for. So the penalty has been paid. The sins have been taken care of. As long as we have accepted his payment, then we are forgiven of our sins and we are justified before God Almighty. Why is that? Because he gave his body, he gave his blood. These symbols represent something very, very important for us. They represent that somebody loved you enough to shed their, their blood, to give their body for you to have complete forgiveness, to have a home in heaven. So this is something that is really, really, really serious and should move us. I said it's a, a point of rejoicing. It should move us. Last weekend, uh, some of you had the experience that you were involved with a marathon race last week. You look closely. The person on the right in this picture is Pastor Art. He ran 13-mile marathon. Yeah, go, wow. That's why he's still sleeping this morning. He's just one wide, totally wiped out. During that marathon, he, Pastor Art was not the first one in. Okay? He wasn't the second one in. He was... He got in. Okay, 13 miles. He made it. And uh, the one part I want to share is not only that he labored to do it and to finish a 13-mile race, but as he was coming up the road, then uh, a friend of his, Corey, came beside to just help encouraging when you're running that last half mile. What an encouragement. Somebody else, when you feel like you're ready to quit, you're ready to give up. And as he came around the one corner, just uh, then as he came around, his, his uh, son and daughter, Dylan and Zach, they jumped into the race and joined him. And they ran the last little bit. It was downhill, okay? But still, if you've run 13 miles, you want to quit, okay? Going downhill. And the kids jumped in to be an encouragement, to stand, to run beside, to say, we're with you. How did he feel? I know how I felt. When I see that happen at those things, I get this choked up, teary-eyed thing that it's just neat that somebody does that. I don't know how he finished the race besides the tears of, you know, my kids. They cared enough to jump in and to give and, and the, the encouragement that it is that they would care, that they would jump in and help finish the race. Listen, Jesus Christ has jumped in next to you. And the thrill of the fact that Jesus Christ cares enough for you should cause a rejoicing in your heart. And an excitement and a teary-eyedness to say, he loves me that much. That brings me to this thought, reflection. 
This is a service for remembering what Christ has done, but it's a time of reflection. It's involving both what Christ has done and reflecting on other truths. It's a time where we're supposed to be meditating. It's a time where we're supposed to be recalling. We're supposed to be reflecting. Yes, we remember what Christ has done. That is the pivotal, most important part of it. That as the elements are passed, you are thinking, what has Christ done? What is he, what do I mean to him? What does he mean to me? That he is, this is my way of showing he cared enough that he jumped in my place. He wants me to just continue to serve him. He loves me. Ah, this is a thrill that he would care so much for me. But as well, there's a time of reflection in other areas, other looks that we need to take. We entitled the message, The Good Looks for Today. We're not talking about your appearance. We're talking about your actions this morning. Looking the right way, reflecting. Where are you supposed to look when this service takes place? Well, obviously, you're to look backwards. You're to look in the past at what Christ has done. We've already mentioned that. You're to reflect. You're supposed to be thinking that Jesus has literally, physically given his body, his blood for you to have forgiveness. And with that, he suffered the, the ostracizement of his father. That is, that he was separated from God and experienced spiritual hell for you during that time on the cross so that you could have forgiveness. That ought to move you and me a whole lot, looking backwards to have that type of just enjoy, uh, just thrill. But there's another look here. He says that we're to be looking ahead. You do this, verse 26, until he comes. In Matthew 26, when he instituted, he said, I will no longer drink this with you until the day in the kingdom. And so here's the hors d'oeuvres. This is the blessing that there is going to be a banquet in the future. And you and I, when we are celebrating communion, not only reflect and look back at what Christ has done, we're to be looking forward to what God has in store for us in the future. That God has a full meal a full banquet, a heavenly time where there is going to be rejoicing, where we're going to be there. We're going to be in that, that beautiful city. We're going to be with our friends and our loved ones who have already preceded us. This is hors d'oeuvres for you widows. That this is saying your saved spouse is going to be with you one day shortly. This is hors d'oeuvres to say there's going to be a banquet with your moms and dads or brothers or sisters or children who have preceded you into heaven's gates, through those gates. This is an exciting service because it gives us hope for the future. It gives us a promise and a reminder that it is real, that we're going to one day be in a real heaven with a real Christ, with a real reunion with our loved ones, and we look ahead. But we're supposed to take another look. We're to look inside. We're supposed to examine ourselves. That's what he says in verse 28. In fact, he says it twice. If you've not marked it, you should. Verse 28, let a man examine himself. And he makes the, that comment again that in, down in verse 31 that we are to judge ourselves so we're not judged. The point is, this is a service where we reflect and we say, now wait a minute, let me stop. I've got a meal plug going on. I've got a football game I want to see. I've got this to be going. We're going to go shopping. We've got this. No, no, no. You stop everything to get off the, the merry-go-round for a little bit. And you say, during this service, I am supposed to be looking inside. I am supposed to be examining 
What have I done for the Lord? What is it like between me and Jesus? How close am I really? I sit here this morning and I sing songs about me and Jesus and about worshiping him, but do I really have that heart for him? Do I really have that zeal for him? Have I lost my first love? Am I harboring some anger, some, some, some uh, type of resentment against him for putting me through a trial? I need to examine my relationship with me and Jesus. It's a time where we judge ourselves, we examine ourselves, to make sure that we are right with him and we are not holding back or harboring anything that would be in any way, remote way offensive to him. But there's another look. We have to look around us. We have to look at how we stand with other believers. In this passage, it starts off earlier where he says, when you come together, I praise you not. They were having communion, but when they got together, they would have a feast followed up by communion. And he says, you people are not doing it right. You come and there's animosity. There's divisions between you. You come to the communion table and you're not even being considerate of one another. You're kind of pushing and shoving who gets served first. Your attitude as it's going around is hurry this thing up, hurry this thing up. He says, I speak this, that you are, you, you even have a downward look upon others who aren't like you. You shame those who aren't as wealthy, who aren't as well off as you, who aren't dressed the way you are. He says, this is wrong. This is wrong. You need to, you need to examine your heart attitude towards others. What is it like? What is that heart's attitude towards your parents? What is that heart's attitude towards your relatives? What's that heart's attitude that you have towards other brothers and sisters in Christ? You're to be examining that. This service is to call you and me to say, hey, wait a minute, we're supposed to check out our hearts and our lives. How we relate not only to God, but how are we relating to our family? How are we relating to our to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it's a unity service. It's a service where we show what Christ has done and how he's united us together. We need to be right with one another. So the service has a lot of looking that needs to be done. A lot of reflecting. And let me warn you, if you don't take it seriously, you are not on the same uh, channel as God is. God takes this extremely serious. He says that if you come to this table in an unworthy fashion, the idea is you aren't taking this seriously. This is just like, oh, well, ho-hum, dumb, let's get out of here and let's do it. He's saying if you treat this lightly, disrespectfully, he says you're going to bring to yourself physical discipline to the point that some of them, he said, I even took their lives because they so disrespectful regarded and disrespected what I had been planning and what I am trying to represent, that I have died for them, that I have given my life, that I have sacrificed for you. You're to reflect on this and you're to reflect on what I've prepared for you. You're to reflect on how you and I are in relationship and how you are with my other children. And if you say, well, it's not that important, he says, whoa, Woe unto you, this unworthily fashion, this fashion of disregard and disrespect, this is not the place for it. There's certain conduct that's required at certain places, you know, that God says, you can't hide this from me. If you come with an unworthy spirit where you are just, okay, this is mechanical, there is no emotion, this is just, you know, get it out of the way, you can't hide that from God. Did you, did you hear about the burglar? The burglar that was burgling a house. He was in the house and the people came home. The husband and wife showed up so he didn't have a chance to get out of the house. So he ran and hid himself in a closet. He's hiding in the closet and he hid himself in a closet where the couple is going to come into this room. The couple is in this room. They don't know he's hiding. And the wife and the husband start talking about what the evening was like. And, some of the, and they start sharing some of the jokes that they had heard. 
They start cheering them, and it's late at night, and some of you get this way, that when you're really tired, things are a lot more funny. And so they're sharing it, and they're starting, the husband and wife, they are just, you know, they are busting up with laughter, because the jokes are really getting funny. And as they're laughing, 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 all of a sudden the wife hears giggles that don't belong. And they follow the giggles. The burglar was laughing so much he couldn't control himself, he was found out. Okay, because of his humor, his being caught up with the humor. Listen, you can't hide from God this morning. You can't hide your attitude. You can't hide your emotions from God. If you are here and you're saying, church and Christ, they're boring. He knows that. He knows if you come to this service and say, it doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't, you know, I'm, you know, I'm whatever age and I'm cool and I'm not going to be real serious about me and God. He knows that. And he says of all services in the New Testament that he warns about, this is the service he says, you better not do with disrespect or you better not do with disinterest because if you do, I will punish you physically. Children, children, listen. This is a serious moment. I take this really, really, really serious because you are fooling with what represents me. You dare not, you dare not disrespect me. It doesn't happen in my family. It doesn't happen in my home. I will, I will deal with it. You know, so there's moments that require that we come with reverence. This is it. This is that moment that what we do is we are not flippant. We are not silly. We are not mechanical about this service. This service has meaning. If it doesn't have meaning to you, if you cannot be serious, if it doesn't affect you, don't take it, or, or you may want to leave before we do communion. For your own sake, because this is serious with Jesus Christ. There are moments we need to be serious. Now, for me, they're far and few between. When I get in the hospital, I know we're supposed to be serious. But I can't help myself. There are moments when Pastor Binkley and I went on calls. And I just had to. You know, just because it was a, it was a boring day. Pastor Binkley, let's go out this door over here. It'll take, be a shortcut down to the parking garage. I know it says, do not open. But Pastor Binkley, you go first. You open the door, and you know, I'm sure it's a shortcut. So he went ahead, headed that way. While he was going that way, I turned and walked down the hallway this way. When he set off the hospital alarm, it was like, what is that idiot doing over there, standing by that door? You know, so I know that wasn't the appropriate moment, but for Pastor Binkley, I just had to. It was just, you know, uh, is this the appropriate moment to get silly in this service? No. No, not now. Not now. This is serious. We are not to treat the elements as common. This is like any other cracker. This is like any other bread. In essence, it is. But in representation, this represents the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. This is Christ. Representation. This is his picture. This has real serious Meaning to you and me. Not that it is more blessed than any other cracker or grape juice. No. But to our hearts, it is more blessed. Because of what it pictures. There are certain things we would be really appalled. Symbols. We'd be appalled if people mistreated. We'd be appalled, most everyone in this room, would be appalled if somebody started like they have done. In recent situations. Trampled the flag. Okay? I don't care what the cause is. My reaction when you start ripping up the flag or trampling the flag is your cause does not merit that disrespect because of what it represents. If somebody started standing up here and ripping up the Bible 
and showing disrespect, the majority of us would be outraged that they would show that disrespect. Why? We can't replace that Bible? We have so many of them. We could replace it, but it's just the matter of disrespect. You do not disrespect the communion elements because they are supposed to be done taken with reverence. By the way, there are restrictions here. There are restrictions. I said before, it is for all of us. But yet the scriptures give some restrictions. Let me make sure you understand what they are. This service is for believers. It is not for everyone. It is for those who are truly born again. How do I know that? When Jesus established the first communion, he waited until Judas was out of the room. Judas, who was an unbeliever. When he writes to the Corinthians, he talks about you when you come together. Those people were already born again. He talks about in chapter 1. He talks about in chapter 2. You are carnal, but you are brothers and sisters in Christ. That you may not be right with the Lord in all areas, but you are believers. And so he's talking to this church and saying, when you gather for communion, it is for you. It is for you who are believers. This isn't a community-wide service. This isn't for any and everyone. This is for believers who are right with one another. And by the way, I want to add this. This is not a service that is for believers to celebrate individually at home. It says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 several times when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. This is a church service. This is not a private family or you know, group getting together that we're just going to do. This is a church service for a church gathering that is done for believers, believers who are right with God and right with one another, which we've already talked about. So this service has restrictions. Though I invite all of you to participate, I must warn you that you need to examine your hearts. You need to make sure that, one, you are right with God. Two, you are right with one another. And most importantly, that you are already born again. That you already have accepted Christ as your Savior. That you have already asked Christ to apply his death, his payment for your sin, to your account. You must be born again, is what he said. So for us, as we approach this service, here's what communion is. Communion is a very important service. It is the only, part, the only part of a service, though worship is encouraged, and though we are encouraged to do praying and singing when we get together, the only one service where it says you must do this on a regular basis and incorporate this in your church gathering is what we call the communion service. It is the one that is so important. He says, you do this regularly. You represent me. You make sure you do it. And you do it in a way that is reverently done with rejoicing, reverence, respect. It is an intimate service. By that I mean it is where you can draw closer to Jesus Christ. It is about you and Jesus, not about you and your buddies fooling around, poking each other in pens or whatever during the course of this service. This is about you two, you and Jesus Christ being together. It is, as well, a service that with intimacy that you are able to remind yourself that Jesus cares for you. I've told you the story about the handicapped girl. She stuttered. She had problems with that. And everybody else in the class made fun of her years ago. And so the teacher was doing a hearing test. And the way they would do the hearing test is the teacher would sit on one side of the door and whisper something. And the child on the other side was supposed to whisper it back. And the teacher was doing this test. And this little girl who was brokenhearted because of all the name calling that was done during recess. She sits on the chair across from the teacher. She has some sniffles. And the teacher says, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say something and whisper it. You tell me what it says. And the teacher very seriously, very quietly said, I wish you were my little girl. 
The little girl broke into tears, ran around the door, hugs the teacher. Listen, folk, this is Jesus' way of saying and whispering to you, I am glad that you are my son, my daughter. This is his expression of love. This is his postcard. This is his text saying, I love you so much. This is to be a very intimate service. It's also a service where there's an invitation. See, this service is done for the church body and by the church body, but not, not done in such a way that maybe unsaved won't see it. How do I know that? Because he makes this comment as he's talking. He says, you do show the Lord's death. He makes it very clear that we are broadcasting what Christ has done by doing this service. That means we give an invitation to those who may not know Christ as their Savior, may not know they have forgiveness, and we invite them this morning to come into a relationship with Jesus, come into the family of God this morning, join his family, let him take you as a child and son, birth you into his family, and spiritually adopt you so that you become part of this group, this body of believers, the family of God that you need to become a part of. And he says, I want you to do this. And so in communion, we show that. We picture that. We let other people know that there is a banquet feast available and ready for them. It is not just for us to harbor and to keep for ourselves, but we want to invite anybody else who does not know for sure that they are on their way to heaven, that their sins have been forgiven, to use this opportunity, take this opportunity to make sure that their sins are forgiven. It will not happen by taking communion. It will not happen by going through the rest of this service. It will happen by you taking time to pray to the Lord and asking him to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life. When we begin singing in a few moments, we're going to sing three songs in preparation for communion. As we sing, we're going to have some of our pastoral staff go right over there by those doors. If you would like to talk with somebody about knowing for sure that you are on your way to heaven, that your sins are forgiven, knowing for sure that in a hundred years from now you'll be in heaven, then you can, while we sing, get up, feel free to go out those outside doors, make your way over to this area, and meet one of those men, one of those ladies, and they will show you from the Word of God what you need to do this morning to make sure that one day you will be at this feast. It is more important for you to be at that feast in the future than for you to take this communion this morning. With doubt, you need to know for sure you're at that feast. So we would invite you when we sing that you would ask Christ to become your Savior. So this morning, we're going to get prepared in our minds and our hearts and ask the instrumentalists to come back so we can sing some songs and get our minds focused and our hearts thinking about what Christ has done, what he means to us, what we can reverently and rejoicingly thank him for the sacrifice. We can lift up our voices. We can talk about him. We can sing about him. And we can worship him this morning as we go to communion and celebrate it. We sing about his sacrifices that he has made for us this day.